I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton. It's time for some ASAP Frontline again here at Smack Dub. Grabbed another good one for you today. Sarah Gray, she had a couple of talks here at Smack Dublin, Paramortem C-section, as well as Disaster Ethics. So I uh, appreciate you joining me. Give us a little background. Where are you, where you practice, and how do you get these interests? Okay, thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Um, my name's Sarah Gray. I work in Toronto in Canada at St. Michael's Hospital, uh, and my practice is split half-half between emergency medicine and intensive care, um, so I do a bit of both. Uh, you know, my interest in perimortem comes out from a case that I did a few years ago of a perimortem C-section. Uh, so that's always been something I've been interested in. Um, and at my place, I'm also the medical director for emergency preparedness. So I do a lot of our disaster planning uh, and preparedness. So I, I've had an ongoing interest in that area. All right. So I think I would think if most ER physicians are like me, um, the perimortem, the idea of a perimortem C-section is about as gut-wrenching and trouser-changing as it could possibly be. You know, I think all of us have pre studied, know theoretically what we would do, but hope that it's something that we never, ever, ever have to see and maybe just read about and say, thank God it wasn't me. So tell me about the idea behind the talk and some of the points that you have for the perimortem C-section. Sure. So I totally agree with you. I think perimortem C-section is one of the most terrifying cases we ever face. And it's incredibly rare. So many people will never see one. Um, now that I've seen one, I'll probably never see another. Um, but that almost makes it, because it's so rare, people don't learn about it enough. Uh, and because we're afraid of it, you have to have done a bit of practice or a bit of prep in advance if you're going to perform well at the time. Uh, so I still talk about that case because I think I probably won't see another one ever, but maybe somebody else in the audience will learn something from, uh, from what happened in my case that they can use when it comes through their doors. So give us the background um, of the case. And it's one of those things, perimortem C-section is one of those things that when it comes in the door, you don't have hours to think about it. You don't have, you know, mm, let's get a couple CT scans, maybe an MRI, we'll run a few lab tests, they'll come back, oh, we need to get a baby out. It's one of those things that it's a crap or get off the pot kind of thing where you have to make the decision and do it in order for there to be a good outcome. I mean, basically what you're admitting, you're admitting is that mother's on the way out um, and that the one good thing that may possibly come from this is a, is a happy, uh, healthy baby. And you can make that difference. If not, you've got the potential of having um, two bodies that you're dealing with in your emergency department. So tell us about the case and things that went through your mind and some tips you may have for the other doctors and uh, PAs and nurse practitioners out there that may, may have this role in the door. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, when I was working in my department, we got a call from the paramedics uh, that there was a pregnant woman coming in who was VSA uh, and that they were about two minutes out. So we had a couple minutes to prepare. Um, we're lucky at my place. We have what we call a code OB, which is our maternal cardiac arrest code. Um, if you have one of these, it's really valuable because um, when we call that, it means you get a neonatologist, we get a couple neonatology nurses, you get obstetricians, and you get all the respiratory therapy and sort of airway support that you need. Um, and having that can be completely life-saving. 
um, because you really need those resources. It's ideal if you can have one team working with the mother doing ACLS in the airway, one team for the C-section part of things, and then ideally also a neonatal team or a baby team. Um, So we prepared to do uh, the perimortem C-section, which, I mean, in fact, now the, the new term for it is resuscitative hysterotomy. Because there is also evidence that not only is this a procedure where you're able to potentially save the baby, but it's also a procedure that helps mom. And there is evidence now that doing this can help mom have return of spontaneous circulation and improve your chances of getting the mother back. Um, so, uh, you know, it's always when you're standing there about to do it, it's a terrifying moment. Uh, we were all terrified. Um, And that makes you hesitate. Thinking about it in advance is actually really valuable, so you don't hesitate so much at the time. Um, But we went ahead and did the section. Um, Baby was delivered uh, with low APGARs. Um, And we continued to try to resuscitate the mom, but unfortunately the mother's resuscitation was not successful. Um, Baby was intubated and had about a minute of CPR. Um, And she was admitted to the ICU where she she was there for many weeks. Um, but in fact, now she's still followed by my hospital, by my pediatric clinic, um, and she is uh, a healthy little girl uh, who's neurologically intact. Um, so we were uh, so happy to have that as part of the positive outcome. And I think one of the things you hit on there, other than you know being as the physician being comfortable with this if it comes through the door, well, not being comfortable, um, but being, I would say, more familiar and accustomed and ready to act on it because I don't know that that being comfortable is anything that anybody would ever be when you're you're emergently cutting open um, a mother to pull out a baby but I think things you hit on there is having is taking advantage of the resources that you have if you have a a hospital that's got OB services that has the trauma services or whatever putting together those teams necessary to have them there because it's better to have them there in the beginning and say no we don't need you and sending them away than getting somebody there and then trying to get everybody down there which can be very difficult but in smaller hospitals that may not have those supports having a system having knowing what's there having all the supplies ready whether it's a, a crash c-section um, set up whether it's having all of the OB supplies having the airway supplies for these uh, newborns and children and knowing where they are and practicing them uh, with them you know my particular facility we have OB but we don't do a lot of pediatrics and we don't do a lot of sick pediatrics so when they come in it's basically um, a little bit of a, a, a little bit of a um, herding cats in terms of trying to get everything that we need in order to get everything together you know where's the airway stuff where's the uh braslow tape where where's all the stuff that we need and then uh and getting those folks down there so making sure that in your facility if you don't have all that backup having the supplies you need and you may say well we don't do kids so we don't need that i have worked at facilities in the past that say we don't do babies so we don't need to have the supplies well let me tell you if you're an emergency room eventually somebody's going to show up at your door and you can't once they show up at your door you can't tell them oh you're at the wrong place you need to be able to act on that stabilize that do what you can do and then get them to that definitive care as indicated Um, so making sure that you're practiced with that and so we're sitting here right now um, here mid-june 
and you know we've just had the tragedy down in Orlando a medical student colleague of mine started off in surgery with him is one of the trauma surgeons in Orlando and dealt with some of that stuff and so I've been following with him talking with him about all that stuff that happened and one of your areas of focus is on disaster and you did a talk here on disaster ethics and I think everybody especially in the United States but around the world um, everybody's dealing with the potential disaster of some nature how do we get prepared and, and give us some of the background and, and details of that talk that you gave here at SMAC? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been, uh, I mean, just tragic circumstances recently in Orlando. There's been so much talk about it here at, at the conference, and um, I think our, our hearts and prayers go out to all of the people there uh, who were affected by that. Um, there There are incredible numbers of disasters that go on, uh, both man-made and and natural tragedies um, that we need to be prepared for. Uh, And so I think it's important that hospitals have programs uh, related to preparedness and making sure there are plans in place for all of the typical things. Um, And then also the ability and the facility to practice those plans, uh, either by doing mock exercises or tabletops, but to make sure that we are developing and maintaining those skills. Um, Specifically, what we were talking about yesterday here at SMAC uh, was the concept of how do you triage scarce resources in a disaster? So, for example, uh, if you're in the middle of a mass casualty situation and you start running out of something, uh, whether it's an ICU bed or uh, you start running out of blood or you start running out of ventilators, how uh, can we develop plans for triaging those scarce resources or using them most effectively? Um, Which is always a a really difficult conversation to have. Uh, Nobody really wants to talk about the possible scenario where we might not have enough for everybody. Um, But that makes it all the more important to have clear criteria and triggers for that. You don't want individual healthcare workers to sort of be out there on their own uh, making these decisions in the heat of the moment. It's much better in advance to have tried to work out how you will make those decisions and who will decide. because that way you can try to optimize the outcomes to, to develop the best possible outcomes for the most patients. If, and I think a lot of us in practice, we always assume that we can get the resources we need, even if we run short, that within a few hours we can probably get what we need. But 2009 with the H1N1 um, outbreak, there was huge fear that we may run out of ventilators nationwide. And then what would we do? How would you determine who gets it? And basically the other side of that conversation is who to determine that we're going to allow to die. Um, and I think a lot of us have a hard time dealing with that, uh, of facing that. We don't want to face that thought, but eventually there's a decent chance that somebody out there listening is going to face that to where you do run out of stuff. I mean, one of my favorite books, and we did a podcast interview on everyday medicine um, with the author, with Sherry Fink on five days of memorial about um, Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans and some of the challenges they faced. And do you deal with, how do you deal with the idea of who's going to survive and who's not going to survive? That whole feeling that you may be playing God, um, it's, I think it's difficult. As much as we want to be confident in what we do, I don't think any of us wants to feel like we get to make the choice 
whether somebody lives or dies. So how do we, how as a facility, how as a community, do we prepare for those disasters and how do we deal with those ethics around decisions of life and death? Yeah, so I think you made some great points. Um, people don't like to talk about this because the ideas are so difficult. Uh, we don't like to consider um, running out of precious resources. People are concerned about the legal implications of that, about uh, backlash, about guilt they may feel. Um, but I think that's what makes it all the more important to have had the discussion in advance so that you don't have individual healthcare workers who are forced to make these decisions on their own in the middle of the night or in the heat of the moment. Uh, and so much of this work came out after H1N1 or after the SARS epidemic and events like that, where there are some published criteria in the literature uh, for how we should make these decisions or how we should prioritize who will be admitted to an ICU, for example. Um, and I think it's important for us to start having these conversations and getting this conversation out of the closet, so to speak, so that we can uh, come to consensus as a community, uh, you know, across our health regions or even across countries or continents, um, so that we can have a unified approach to this. Um, not only uh, to give guidance to the healthcare workers who are there, but most importantly to achieve the best possible outcomes for the patients who are impacted. You know, as the world gets smaller, not physically, but, um, you know, with, with travel and borders being basically not as existent, you know, we're coming, the world in many cases seems to be becoming a melting pot. You know, we're going to have to deal with those because diseases have no borders. Um, and, you know, we, we're going to deal with things like that. And, you know, I do have a concern. You know, right now this summer is Zika. And though Zika may not be something that's going to challenge a lot of the resources it, it's still something to think about that you know eventually we could have that illness that spreads among continents and and around the world and then how will we deal with those resources so uh dr gray tell us uh, how if people are interested in getting more information from you contacting you how can uh, we do that twitter email whatnot yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm, I'm easy to find on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at EMICU Canada. Um, or if you want um, other easy ways to contact me, I have a website, which is saragray.org. Um, you can find disaster triage information there uh, and just my contacts. All right. So saragray.org. Uh, check that out. Some very important information. And thank you so much for your time. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, thank you for everything you've done here for the conference. Um, and again, her talks will be available on the uh, on the Smack uh, podcast as well. So if you want to hear the entire talks, as for me, you can catch me on Twitter at Everyday Med, um, on Facebook as well. We now have the ASAP Frontline um, uh, Facebook page as of yesterday. So um, yesterday here we we put that together. So we have a site for you to go on as well. You can catch all the podcasts on iTunes, and you can contact me at yourevidaymedicine at gmail.com. I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton, and this has been some ASAP Frontline.